You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Let us pray. Blessed and holy Trinity, Lord of our salvation, we adore you, the one and only true God. God the Father, we thank you that you chose us and loved us before the creation of the world and sent your Son to redeem us. God the Son, we thank you that you obeyed the will of the Father and laid down your life to wash us clean of our sins. God the Holy Spirit, we thank you that you regenerated our hearts and gave us the eyes of faith to see and embrace the Son. We direct our endless praise and thanksgiving to the one eternal and uncreated being in three distinct persons. Lord, we confess that our sins are many and our hearts are prone to wander. We are all too easily distracted and divided. Help us, Lord, to live as a people who have been baptized into your triune name. Give us strength to obey you and courage to conquer the flesh. Search us, God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. As we incline our ears now to the preaching of your word, we ask for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. You promised that your word that goes forth from your mouth shall not return to you empty. And so accomplish what you so desire in us today, that we might live a life worthy of the calling. We pray all this in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we go right back where we left off in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. So please open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 and 2. Ephesians 4, 1 to 2, hear the word of the Lord. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Amen. This was a reading of God's word. So far, I've preached 16 sermons on Ephesians, and we were able to cover chapters 1, 2, and 3. And since there are six chapters in total, that means we're about halfway through. And at this halfway point, I want you to notice something very important. The first three chapters were so densely packed with theological concepts and the gospel of grace. The Apostle Paul took up the first half of the letter to the Ephesian Christians to tell them who God is and what God has graciously done for them. And then, starting from chapter 4 through chapter 6, we will notice a shift of focus. A shift of focus to instructions 
and moral imperatives. You see, this is the general pattern for most of Paul's letters in the New Testament. Only after he labors and spends a lot of time and ink to clarify what the gospel is and what God has done for believers, Paul goes on to tell believers what they must do and how they must live. What God has done for us first, then what we must do second. Gospel and salvation first, then moral imperatives, responsibilities second. Who we are in Christ first, then how we are to live as Christians second. This order is so important for us to understand and maintain. Because if we reverse the order, we can easily distort the Christian message of grace into a message of works righteousness. The gospel message is not don't do bad things and do good things, give more, serve more, change this or that about your life, and then come to Jesus and be accepted by God. That's not the gospel. Do not be confused. No one can earn acceptance from God by their own works and by their own human efforts. Yet, I am not saying that repentance and holy living is not necessary. It is absolutely necessary. And so what I mean is that repentance and holy living is the necessary response to the free offer of God's grace and full acceptance in Jesus Christ. True repentance begins with the eye of faith looking to the cross of Christ. Real transformation of life starts when you have been graciously justified and redeemed by the blood of Christ. And without a firm grasp of this gospel of grace, religious piety, Moralistic living is just self-righteousness and pride in disguise. It is worthless and ugly before God. So you can be sure of this. Hell will be filled with outstanding citizens and moralistic people. And heaven will be filled with filthy sinners who have trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And if Jesus Christ is not Lord and Savior of your life, you have no power to live a holy and pleasing life unto God. So the Apostle Paul, after three chapters of telling the Ephesian believers about God's grace and saving them through Christ, and then uniting them to become members of one body, the church, Paul now goes on to tell them what they must do and what they must be. In other words, chapter 4 is the formal beginning of Paul's application of doctrine. Today, we will only have time to look at the first two verses. So let's jump right in to verse 1. 
Paul writes this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is a strong imperative to believers, to live a life worthy of the calling. But before we talk about the imperative, let us ponder on who it is that gave the imperative. It is the Apostle Paul, of course, but he does not refer to himself as the Apostle here. He does not waive his God-given authority as an Apostle as he's about to give this charge to the believers. Surely he could have said, as an Apostle of the Lord, then I urge you. But rather, he chooses to say, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you. There's a big difference there. Paul was writing this letter to the Ephesians while he was most likely imprisoned in Rome toward the end of his life. And Paul was imprisoned several times during his ministry, all for the cause of Christ and for preaching the gospel. He is a prisoner for the Lord. And by telling us he's a prisoner for the Lord, Paul is not trying to arouse sympathy or praise. You see, instead of appealing to his apostolic authority to tell, tell believers what to do and how they should live, he appeals to his own sufferings for Christ. He appeals to his own sufferings for Christ as an example for other believers. Paul is truly a leader who leads by example. A leader who actually lives by his convictions. A leader who is willing to pay the cost of following Jesus Christ. A leader can, who can enjoy that they have been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And oh, how desperately we need more godly men and women like this in our churches. We don't need more influencers on TikTok. We need men and women who by their radical display of allegiance to Christ inspires the next generation to follow pursuit. That's what we need. And so let us declare with the Apostle Paul, even if faithfulness to Christ means discomfort, disadvantage, and disapproval, even if obedience to Christ means poverty, persecution, and prison, we will follow after Christ because he is worth it. This is the kind of Christianity that we want to pass down to our children and to the next generation. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul is urging believers to live in a manner that is appropriate for recipients of the gospel of grace that he so labored to expound in the preceding chapters. Believers are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, chosen before the creation of the world to be holy, predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. All this was a gift of God's grace 
For when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God made us alive with Christ. The Son of God spilled his own blood, and his sacrifice achieved peace between God and sinners, and between Jews and Gentiles. And the result is the church, one new humanity, redeemed and reconciled. You see, the calling that Paul speaks of here in verse 1 is the calling unto salvation, the gospel of grace, and all its benefits for Christians to enjoy. The calling is all that God has done for us and a new life in Christ. But notice something here. Never once does Paul suggest that we become worthy, we make ourselves worthy to be called. But he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Believers have already received the calling. They already possess God's full approval and acceptance in Jesus Christ. We do not earn the grace of God. We cannot earn the grace of God. But rather, upon receiving the grace of God, it produces in us a new way of life, one that is in keeping with the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, quote, Our lives are to give practical expression and visible illustration to the power and reality of God's grace in us, end quote. The byproduct of grace received is grace lived out. This is the life worthy of the calling. Since our lives have been redeemed by Christ, every aspect of our lives must serve to glorify and magnify Christ. The whole of our lives, public and private, are to be lived in light of the gospel of grace we have received. There is no secular and sacred divide. This means that you're a Christian at church, you're a Christian in the privacy of your home, you're a Christian in the workplace, you're a Christian when you're out with your friends, you're a Christian 24-7. Are you honoring Christ in every aspect and spectrum of your life? Or are you just wearing a mask when you're at church around other Christians? Because you can deceive other people, you can even deceive yourself, but you cannot deceive the all-seeing and all-knowing God. When you identify as a Christian, do you know what you're doing? When you identify as a Christian, you are essentially putting on the name of Christ. 
It is a great privilege to bear the name of Christ. But the question is, are you living consistently with the name that you bear? Are you really living like a Christian before the face of God? The term Christian literally means follower of Christ. And this term or nickname was actually made up by the persecutors of the faith in the first century. And it was meant as a mocking insult. Oh, look over there, those Christians. Remember this, that Jesus Christ was despised by the society of his time. All of his followers who associated with him were given this name as an insult. In the eyes of the society, these pitiful poor Christians followed a humiliated and crucified loser. But these Christians were so in love with their Christ that they cherished every word that he spoke, followed every instruction he gave. They were so obsessed with their Christ that their whole lives revolved around him. They spoke like him, they thought like him, they acted like him, they even suffered like him. That's what being a Christian had always, always meant. A life completely dictated, directed, and shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the unfortunate reality is that today, the term Christian has lost all significance. Now when someone tells me that they're a Christian, I don't care. But I say, show me your life. Are you living a life worthy of the calling? Because by the way that someone lives their life, I can see what they believe. I can see whether they fear God. I can see whether they love Christ. And I'm not saying that you have to be perfect to be a Christian. I'm not perfect. Nobody is perfect. But when God's love and grace truly invades a sinner's life, transformation begins to occur. It is inevitable. Think about the thief on the cross to whom Jesus showed mercy. Had he survived, would he go back to his old ways and be content with living like a thief? Think about the prodigal son who was received back by the father. Would he be content to go back to his old ways and live with the pigs? Never. Neither the thief or the prodigal earned God's acceptance. Far from it. Sinners do not deserve God's love. But when they come to know that they are dearly loved and accepted despite their failures, despite their sinfulness, when they come to know and are, are secure in the immeasurable love of God in Jesus Christ, something begins to change in them. Something begins to change. Friends, 
the Son of God, paid the high cost of redemption with his own life. For anyone who would trust in him, for the greatest of sinners among us who would take hold of him, Jesus Christ takes your sins, your guilt, your shame, and he takes your place in judgment. And then in turn, he gives you his name. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his favor with the Father. And in fact, if he loved you in your sins, he loves you too much to leave you in your sins. Dear Christian, Jesus loved you unto death. And he did not die so that you can continue indulging in your sin. But he died to set you free from the guilt and power of sin. The Spirit of God is daily at work in you to change you from within and conform you into the image of Christ. And one day, in the day of glory, all presence of sin will be removed from us and wiped away from the face of the planet. No more sin at all. No more potential of sin at all. This is God's promise of salvation to us in Jesus Christ. A homeless orphan is living and sleeping on the streets. He hasn't taken a shower in days. His clothes are all stained and torn. He barely has enough food to eat. And with what little money he has, he buys crystal meth to shoot into his veins. One day, an expensive car stops right in front of him, of this homeless orphan, and comes out the world's richest man. The rich man, out of his compassion for the child, takes him back to his house, back to his big mansion, cleans him up, feeds him fine food, dresses him in royal clothes, gives him a great education, and adopts him as his own son. This child, who was once homeless, is now part of the royal family and is entitled to inherit everything from this rich man. Everything. But how tragic and how appalling how unjust would it be if we found the child back on the streets, back into a life of addiction and drugs, searching for leftover food in the dumpster? This adopted child has forgotten his newfound identity and privileges that he has graciously inherited. Such is the life of many defeated and miserable Christians today. And the apostle exhorts us, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Let us not be content then 
with our old way of life. Let us not be content with momentary and fleeting pleasures. Let us not give way to the devil and his snare, but let us live up to the higher calling we have received. Let us live like children of the King. Now let us turn our attention to the second verse of chapter 4. Paul shows us an idea of what a life worthy of the calling actually looks like practically. He writes, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Here Paul outlines four of many essential Christian virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, and love. When I first became a born-again Christian many years ago, the first Christian book I ever purchased for myself and read was Humility by C.J. Mahani. You can guess why I bought that book, because I needed some help with humility. And still to this day, I think back to the lessons I learned in this book. In this, in this book, humility is defined as honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. You see, if we cannot honestly assess and evaluate ourselves and have a correct view of God's holiness and how much we fall short of His standards, we will be subject to the ugliness of pride. We will burn the people around us. In our sin, we are conditioned to promote ourselves to put ourselves above others. We are obsessed with ourselves. We think that we are more important than we are. We proudly flaunt our achievements, our possessions, and even our children's successes. Self-exaltation is essentially putting others down. It gives us a thrill to know and think that we are better than someone else. And self-centeredness is essentially hating our neighbors. It is so natural for us to look down on others. It is so natural to look to our own interests and not of others. And this inflated view of the self has caused so much evil, so much crime, so much division in the world. And God hates it. God hates it. Scripture teaches God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If you're puffed up in pride, you have effectively made yourself an opponent of God. God opposes you. And it is a losing fight. You will eat up the consequences. But if you lower yourself to the ground, 
in all humility, if you acknowledge your sinfulness and depravity before the greatness and holiness of God, if you recognize how much you desperately need Jesus Christ, a Savior, He will show you favor. He will show you grace. And to those of you who think of yourself as being humble enough, I caution you, and do not be fooled. Your pride shall blind you of your depravity. And in your depravity, you will begin to take pride in your perceived humility. You will begin to take pride in your awareness of pride. That's how depraved we really are. We can always go lower. We can always go lower. For all come from the dust, and to dust all return. Humility is a virtue, and gentleness is a virtue. The world will agree it is a virtue. But the world also looks for aggressive and combative leaders and politicians. The world rewards hostile and egotistic personalities and gives them a platform. The world promotes masculinity that is domineering and, and, and arrogant. Our culture largely perceives gentleness or meekness as passivity or weakness. But the truth is, biblical gentleness is not weakness at all, but it is strength. It is only for the strong. Gentleness flows out of a person's strength, stability, self-control, and wisdom. It is truly a strong and stable person who does not lose their temper easily and reacts to provocation. It is truly a self-controlled and wise person who can hold their tongues from slander and diffuse anger. It is no surprise then that the most gentle man that ever walked the earth was also the strongest and wisest man, the man Jesus Christ. Isn't this true? If you want to grow in gentleness, start by carefully meditating on the book of Proverbs. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. A man's discretion makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Gentleness is a virtue. Humility is a virtue. And also, patience is a virtue. The Greek word translated here in verse 2 as patience is makrothumia. Makrothumia. It is two words put together. Macro, which you kind of have an understanding of macro is. Macro means long or great. And thumos means passion or temper. Okay, so put that together. The Greek word for patience literally means long temper 
or long-suffering. In this sense, patience refers to the ability to hold your temper for a long time or the ability to endure suffering and pain for a long time. That's what patience is. Toddlers and babies, they can't hold in their discomfort or pain very long. And so they explode and they unleash a great tantrum. And as babies grow up into adulthood, their threshold for, for pain and for suffering matures and grows. But the problem is that even as adults, we often struggle to have patience. Sin corrupts the whole person, leaving them underdeveloped. I love how biblical counselor Lou Priolo defines patience. Quote, the ability while experiencing physical or mental distress to keep one's emotions, grief, fear, and anger from developing into sinful thoughts, word, attitudes, or actions, especially toward God and other people, end quote. Beautiful definition. Nurturing this, though, nurturing patience is not easy. It is not easy. It's a lot of hard work. It will require consistent and thoughtful reflection on the goodness of God. It will require unwavering trust in God's perfect timing and plan. It will require humble and persistent submission to God's word and God's will. But like a precious diamond, patience is a rare and precious virtue of great value. And it will set Christians apart from the world. Humility is a virtue. Gentleness is a virtue. Patience is a virtue. And love is a virtue. Of course, a lot can be said about Christian love. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul specifically means forbearing love, bearing with one another in love. And so when somebody is different from you, has a different opinion, when somebody is annoying you, when somebody has offended you, can you still put up with them? Can you still tolerate them? Can you still bear with them in love? That's what he means. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8 reminds us, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. If you struggle with a critical spirit, if you struggle with bitterness and unforgiveness, what can you do? How can you grow in forbearing love? Well, start by trying to pray. Pray for the person who you are critical of, who is causing you grief. Bring them before the throne of grace. Pray for their well-being. Pray for God to bless them. Pray for God to help them. And also pray for yourself. Pray that God would help you to see them and see other people as, as how God sees them, 
as a valuable person created in the image of God or as a precious child of God if they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And the most powerful habit to train yourself in forbearing love is to daily and frequently remind yourself of how much God has put up with you. How much God has forgiven you. How much God has shown you love that you did not deserve. Pray the Lord's Prayer every single day and do not mindlessly just say it. Slow it down, especially when you pray, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And actually try to mean what you say, lest you lie to the Holy Spirit. And so, beloved church, having received grace upon grace upon grace, let us walk in newness of life and live a life worthy of the sacred calling. Let us live consistently with the name that we bear in the face of God. And let us prove to be disciples of Jesus Christ by growing in humility, gentleness, patience, and love, all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. For your word instructs us, corrects us, helps us, reminds us. And Lord, in Jesus Christ, we are your children. We are beloved. We are accepted. And from this position of security, Lord, help us to live a life consistent with the name that we bear as Christians. Help us to glorify you privately and publicly. And so God, may your Holy Spirit help us to walk in step with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.